Hello, baby. Want a kiss? Welcome to the Experimental Film Podcast with your host, Ken Hess. Teaching a parakeet to talk is fun, but the old method took too much time and patience. This record is specially designed to teach any healthy, normal parakeet to talk by using a scientific new method that is acknowledged to be far superior because a carefully trained voice, specially chosen for excellence in clarity and diction, repeats over and 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 over the same words, the same phrase, in a manner that most parakeets are most likely to imitate. Check experimentalfilm.info for information, interviews, and episodes. For the next few seconds, this record will be silent. This podcast is dedicated exclusively to experimental film and its makers. Welcome, everyone, to Episode 7 of the Experimental Film Podcast. Today's guest is Richard Altman. Richard is the director of the Winnipeg's McLuhan Collection of Films. He lives in Winnipeg, Canada, and is a production assistant and video editor. Welcome to the show, Richard. Hey, Ken. Nice to be here. Hey, I'm glad you're on. Uh, Why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. Um, I've been doing sort of what I would call experiments and media editing, like, since the mid-90s, just once I realized you could, you know edit digitally. I really took advantage of that, but really not like in a traditional way. I looked at it more like I was making uh, short stories or just, um, I don't know, essays, you could say. And um, I never really abandoned it and sort of followed the trajectory starting off with, um, I think the very first time I saw digital video was on the first version of Premiere in 1995, or right around the time the movie Crimson Tide came out. For some reason, I associated with uh, that the person or the couple of guys that I knew that had the ability to like digitize just on their computer. And whenever Crimson Tide came out, it just like blew my mind because obviously all the whole mechanical process was just you know shrunk by so many magnitudes. And then I think that went to like a thing called Video Toaster and Media One Hundred. I never owned any of these things, but I kind of like moved around in circles where I had sporadic access to them and uh, i think i lived in toronto and did a vhs offline of a movie that i like a i guess a fictional movie that i made and mostly just to see if i could you know get it complete anyway so without digressing too much i've been recreationally video editing for like 20 years and i only really started using a computer well my first macbook i got in 2008 so uh, I know that answers part of the question, but I just felt it was important to give a context um, to the tools for video editing, just because I think if you're self-taught, you can't help but be an experimental filmmaker, unless you're just trying to sort of imitate or just do your version of a traditional classification, like a, a genre film, I guess, or a genre documentary. Right. And I've never really found doing that. I never found the motivation to do that. I guess, for better or worse. The series of films is refers to Marshall McLuhan, uh, who is, I guess, a native uh, Winnipegian. <laughs> and um, yeah. So what fascinates you about him and his work to make this series of experimental films about his idea of the medium being the message? Well, I guess primarily he wrote so much just about the effects that technology had on society 
and even you know what you what we call civilization, just like the effect of let's say writing, and then the influence of writing on the spoken word. And so, just I'm fascinated by McLuhan because of his um, unique sensory approach to communication. You know how every technology is an extension of our senses, um, clothing an extension of the skin, um, writing an extension of the eye, and just this this um, dedication to focusing on what he would call um, the ground as opposed to the figure. And in terms of the like the aphorism, medium is the message. Uh, the medium would always be the ground, and the message would always be the figure. And contemporary society seems preoccupied with the figure and becomes a little bit more, I guess, after this media action, so to speak, that we've been living through, we're really forced to analyze all the technological mediums of communication in general. And um, that was his main focus, was just focusing on the ground, because without the ground, there's no figure. And, we, you know, again, like uh, the effects rather than the innovations themselves, just the effects of the innovations, because it's kind of inevitable that there's always going to be innovations, but we don't necessarily know any of their long-term effects or psychic effects on, on society. And they tend to, as he and others would say, wreck. And I mean wreck, I mean metaphorically or satirically. You take net, what the effect of Napster on the music industry and how people just assume music is free now or they pay for it by subscription. And really the only thing music has to offer as an industry is touring or just physical media because uh, everything else can be digitized. And just the huge effect that had on that industry and how we're really living through the Napsterization of every sort of field in our society, like politics, television, movies, telephones, <laughs> radio. I mean, yeah. it, it just it, it just um, disappears the mechanical. I guess the, the most succinct thing I heard McLuhan say would be that um, all hardware is becoming software. Now, obviously, that's not completely true, but a lot of that is quite true. And then the psychic baggage of that process is something I think... As a society, we struggle with its meaning every day, Twitter being sort of like the front line of confusion. Right. And so would you consider yourself a McLuhan scholar or at least um, a McLuhan fan, maybe? I would consider myself a person that has listened to more Marshall McLuhan than maybe very few other people have listened to the like spoken word of McLuhan or, you know, like including video, but I've listened to so much audio of Marshall McLuhan talking for the last, let's say, five years, and even a few years before that, that the fact that he grew up in Winnipeg was something I didn't even know until after I had started making at least a few as early as uh, late 2007. I think I started making formal McLuhan collages, but even back in the mid-90s, I included him in a, in a pretty influential collage that I made with a friend of mine, and I didn't even know it was him until like 15 years later rewatching it that he was in there at the time i didn't know who it was it was just some guy that went like he didn't even say a word actually in the collage he just went like um and then it's just edited to something else which i thought was uh interesting just because um is kind of like you know the automatopoeia so to speak if if you were to make an acronym of understanding media it would be um and also he went to university of manitoba which is also um i'm leaving out the h but his first name was herbert and hardly anybody knows so that's just like, hmm, or um. So it's like these like um, morphemic, uh, rather phonemic, 
and I don't mean that I'm not an academic, but phoneme would be like abacada and morpheme would be like ABC. So the phonemes are just like the letters themselves in our phonetic alphabet. And the fact that my first usage of McLuhan was in a phonemic rather than morphemic sense is, well, last thing I'll say about it is McLuhan appeared or was mentioned on season two of The Sopranos. And the person that uploaded the scene onto YouTube said something along the lines of, or one of the comments out of the few comments out of the four comments, one of the comments was, if this is a joke, this is a joke like four people in the universe would get. Now that's not very good for like, you know, creating a livelihood as a filmmaker, but you can't choose your art. Your art kind of chooses you. And if it's lucrative, you're lucky. And um, that's, that's why I guess it's interesting that more and more people are becoming filmmakers and some are like very good at um, reciting genre sort of protocols and others just kind of like stumble through it. And I consider myself in the latter quality and the media itself, like the, the, just the act of editing. If you do it enough, you can't help but sort of like create art out of it, even despite your intentions. Yeah. I like the way you describe your films as collages. I was trying to come up with a word and I was actually going to ask you what you call them. A collage is a, a great description of exactly what they are. So let me ask you this. Um, in one of McLuhan's interviews, I recall that he calls advertising 20th century folk art. So do you think that these experimental films that we're making in the 21st century, would he consider those folk art as well? I, probably. I mean, folk art, I think just in general, is just sort of like art for its own sake that has a context, which would be whatever region it's created. I also heard him refer to advertising as the cave painting of the 20th century. And that like, um, when you think about a cave painting, nobody that ever made a cave painting was ever expecting anyone else to see it. And it was primarily, uh, well, I guess for lack of a better description, a spiritual endeavor in order to, let's say, invoke a good harvest or invoke, um, the capture of food and just health in general. And so you could say for the, you know, if you were to take an aspect of cave art and monetize or commercialize it, I mean, advertising is great art, but the difference between all the things that McLuhan said and today is that McLuhan said them at a time when, you know, newsprint and, and paper and mechanical means of distributing data were the pace of, um, Ideas. Ideas were really only distributed by a, a vast mechanical infrastructure and supply chain. And today, it's more like how it was before the printing press. We are, we're in a post-literate world that has all the benefits of a mechanical world and then surpasses it. But with the folky, word-of-mouth, village sensibility. And it's at once intimate and infuriating because uh, anybody that lives with anybody you're going to eventually, um, you know, you're going to have arguments as well as not have arguments, but you're going to remember the arguments. You're going to not remember when things are going well. And it just seems that we're all just being introduced to our, each other so um, casually at such a rapid rate that uh, it, it really is hard to have definitions yeah. because every time we come up with a new technology, we have to revise our definitions. I mean, we're never, you know, if, if people still use browsers they've never bookmarked a web page 
And, you know, like, it's like when the car was initially called a horseless carriage. We're always looking at the new issue in the old context, and we can't help but do that. And so that's when sort of just intuition or faith or just, well, let's just call it intuition. I mean, you just sort of have to... Yeah, I'll lead myself into a segue on intuition and faith and, and stuff like that. Um, McClure was very fascinated with this short story by Edgar Allan Poe that was called Descent into the Maelstrom. And he used it as a means of just figuring out that pattern recognition is all you can do under circumstances of information overload. In the story, these two brothers go fishing and then there's a big um, tornado uh, and a, a like a storm happens and it creates a vortex and one of the two brothers like drowns and the other one is so um, sort of like his mind is so blown by the circumstances. There's so much phenomena going on that he kind of detaches himself from the situation he's in and just starts um, noticing things that sink and things that then rise up again. And so when he finally comes to his consciousness while still within this vortex, he attaches himself to one of the objects that, rides up again and he rides out the storm and so this idea of service and disservice um pattern recognition under information overload conditions that if you look at McLuhan's work over the whole course of all his essays all his talks all his books it's always about the effects of innovation more so than innovation and innovation is just an inevitability through existence good innovation that gets adopted by everybody get everybody gets a chance to kind of author their usage of the innovation but we don't really think about the effects engendered by our usage especially not collectively i mean there's many good things and then there's bad things i mean in the trailer for one of my movies called uh, western cynical McLuhan literally says all news is fake it's pseudo event created by the medium that's employed which is just him saying you know advertising is really the thing you know, people don't want to spend money getting their messages out. I mean, there'd, there'd be no economy. But, you know, how else to get... You, you can only get your message out through advertising. And it's uh, commerce has pretty much created civilization from beginning of civilization. So as bad as things might seem in the world, there's one thing that is always constant, and that is sort of this immature greed that you wonder if people are even aware that they're doing it. And that's, I don't know, kind of makes me relax when I think about, like, the fact that in the end, whatever's happening at any given time, it's always because of money. Right. And so if, pe if people can just sort of relax about the effects of money, and that's one thing this COVID situation has shown, was just how much you can do uh, without physically going anywhere. Yep. How much can be done that could have been done before that, you know, and, and what's going to stay? Like, what sort of things are going to... Um, what characteristics are going to still, you know, get into our, our lives as a result of this? And I think definitely, well, remote, remote working is becoming more and more of a thing that people can't avoid thinking about. Yep, that's right. You know, it's kind of funny that you should talk about advertising and messages in these contexts, because one of the things that McLuhan said in one of his interviews was that artists and I'm assuming he means, well, he did mention musicians as well, but let's say visual artists, musicians, and anybody who creates something for public consumption, let's say, <clears throat> like a media. Um, he says that what they're actually doing is setting traps for attention. And when you sent your link to me uh, with your film link there, and I looked at it and 
as you said, there's these collages and kind of an information overload. I felt like uh, commander data on the enterprise reading a book and, you know, learning something new because it comes so fast that I almost felt like once I started watching, I couldn't stop. I felt like I was trapped, like I was going down into the maelstrom. I mean, is that was that kind of your intent to set a trap for people who watch your films? Well, I, I've never I've never thought about it in that frame, but I mean, I definitely heard him say what you said that you know the poet more so doesn't really care, just wants the attention, and it's not the attention. I don't believe it's the intention, or it's, no, it's not the intention or the yeah. I don't believe the intention is sufficiently understood by merely saying it's for people's attention. I think that we're all motivated to create arts, whether it's setting a table well cooking a nice meal, making a documentary, taking a good selfie, whatever the artifact that we produce as a result of expressing the context of our existence at that moment that we produce it, I think that that's just there for us to be able to survive. And it just helps us navigate through this ongoing uncertainty in all its manif- in all its granular minutia, like existence itself, not you know, like you can't help but get when you're making art, you, you're always going to think existentially whether we have the vocabulary to be aware that that's what we're doing. I believe that's what we're contemplating. Why are we alive? What is existence? And as far as you want to define it, as as deep as you want to define it, and I think art is the navigation through that that question that is unfolding, and. Um, McLuhan would say art is a, is used as a means of survival. You know, and everybody, if they want to survive, they have to do art. And, and that would be musicians, poets, anything that has a an element of grace that you're aware of. You know, which means like, you know, like uh, as you learn to speak better when you're a kid, it's because you're imitating your environment. You don't, you don't immediately know how to read, um, but you do immediately know how to speak. And this is one of the things McLuhan would say was wrong about people like Noam Chomsky, where Chomsky would think that you have this ability to just uh, read. You have a, like a brain print on your uh, stenciled on your brain that immediately lets you understand how these magic lines that we call letters make these sounds that form logic. That's a you know I, another story, but um, I, I wouldn't call it much of a trap. And and so. Another thing back to um, McLuhan and, and his writing is that like the patterns are always the same because the characteristic of, let's say, my main influence in the style of my art on the videos on my YouTube channel and in, even before the YouTube channel, from, from the beginning of doing this recreational video editing, what I didn't realize was that there's a book by James Joyce that most people have never read, most English professors will never teach, and it's called Finnegan's Wake. And it took 17 years to write. And um, McLuhan grew to really love that book. And he was following the publication of it when it was coming out in monthly inserts in various uh, literary publications. I think, I don't know the name of them, but Finnegan's Wake underwent a lot of different um, editing um, and, and versions. And if you have ever opened it up, you, you pretty much, it, it, you can't say the, the word story because he, basically what Joyce did was he took the medium of the book, including the physicality of opening the book and having pages, to 
the logical extreme that it could go. And so he wrote in a simultaneous way where each sentence was using all the languages of, of the world simultaneously. And if you go through any page of Finnegan's Wake and you open it, it'll probably resonate with something that you just thought. And in my research for this movie, I had heard a rumor that on page 254 of Finnegan's Wake, McLuhan wrote in his own copy of the book, me, as in M-E, and then he wrote Moonchild. And when I finally went to the Fisher Archives in Toronto, and they have, like, I think, four, three or four copies of McLuhan's copies of Finnegan's Wake, and one of, like, one of them that was given to him from Fordham University, which in 1969, McLuhan had the Albert Schweitzer chair at Fordham University. And initially, New York State was going to pay for it, but then they didn't because he was Canadian. And Fordham itself ended up flipping the bill. And he got, like, what would probably now be, like, a, a million-dollar um, job for that year. And so a lot of those lectures are, are online at a place called Ion and Bob. Um, they're also on YouTube, but they were taken from this place called Ion and Bob, like I-O-N... A-N-D-B-O-B.com, I think blogspot.com. Anyway, um, and I, when I finally found the copy of the books in the Fordham edition, which had every right page was blank, so he could write his thoughts on every page, whatever they would be. But yes, on that page, he writes down me, Moonchild. And the line is, a lo- and I'm paraphrasing it, which is kind of like, I'm just going to go sideways here. I'm paraphrasing Finnegan's Wake, but every time we use speech to text, and every time there's a new entry in Urban Dictionary or any time, like, you know, someone on Twitch um, speaks in some kind of acronym, they're basically creating Finnegan's Wake fan fiction. None of them know this, but one day they will, and they'll realize that's what's happened. But that's an aside. So on page 254, it says, Orion of the Orgias, Mirishal McMuhan, Ipstaden, product of the extremes, giving quotidians to our means. Now it goes on. But we have Orion of the Orgiast. Now, all I know is that he said Moonchild in reference to that simply because he's born July 21st, which turns out was the day of the moon mission. Now, we went to the moon July 20th. Whether you believe we went to the moon or not doesn't really matter. We went to the moon July 20th, and Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon July 21st. So McClellan's born July 21st. The moon landing happens in 69. He dies when he's 69. His wife dies when he's 96, and he's known for a quote by saying, if you want to know the style of any book, go to page 96 or 69. John Culkin, the guy that actually said, uh, we don't know who discovered water, but we know it wasn't a fish. He lived at 69-something or other in New York. So that the whole, and then yin-yang. So it's just like, when I read that, it opened up exactly whatever anyone that hears this right now, and maybe yourself, may have thought about by hearing such a string of coincidences. And then he says, uh, me, and it says, Mirshal McMullen. So either he, you know, whether like he did or didn't, I mean, he wrote down me in one copy. And then on another one, he just wrote down 254-3, you know, and he writes down again, Mirichal. And then in some of the the audio interviews I've heard with him, specifically with this French journalist, Anglo-French journalist named Nina Sutton, they're talking about names. And let me let you know, there's like 39 hours of conversation between the two of them in one of those minutes. He, Nina, and some person who I don't know are talking about names of people, just how a name is so indicative of the person. And he pronounces his name Mary Shaw, and then they go through it in French, and he says, well, isn't Mary Shaw a, um, like an iron forger? And she says, no, that's Mary Shaw for, um, Mary Shaw is a, a war marshal. And so that goes to Marshall saying that advertising 
should be looked at as warfare. And if we had any kind of consciousness at all, we would teach our children how to deal with the fallout of advertising. So, I mean, yeah, like he loved advertising, but he was not under some illusion that it was this panacea. And he wasn't a determinist, and he didn't think all technology was just going to make the world better. Right. He simply said, the most human thing about us is our technology. And that's a quote, again, most of what he did in his benefit is that he's an inventory of quotation. He's the person that went through, like he had a five degrees in literature. People think he has only to do with like, you know, studying the future and all that, but he has five degrees in literature, including a PhD in literature. He got his two, his master's and his bachelor's in um, Winnipeg, and then he had to repeat it again when he went to Cambridge. I guess they didn't really recognize the value. So he did it again, then the PhD, and it was on a guy named Thomas Nash, who was kind of like the TMZ of his time. His claim to fame, as far as my limited knowledge of him is, I think he might have been the first person to use the word dildo in a story. <laughs> That's funny. Let's regress here for just a moment. Uh, do you consider yourself to be an experimental filmmaker? Yes. Yes. I, I'm Because I, I just don't see, like, if I want to make Ken Burns style movies, and I love Ken Burns movies, and I love conventional movies, and one day maybe if I get an opportunity, I could easily make one within the constraints. But if I'm just working essentially by myself, I don't, I'm trying to slowly become more uh, genre-like, but I find it very difficult to maintain a contemporary understanding of our world and just have like, you know, a talking head or a voiceover guide the viewer, like spoon feed the viewer, the narrative. And I, I think that's a, it's disrespecting, the subject matter in the case of McLuhan, like you really, you, you have to kind of try to eliminate as much of a bias and uh, as possible. I think it's called um, convex. Or I, I forget. I, I, I know the word. It's called an outlex. And it, what O-U-T-L-E-X is like where you, the artist is not there. Like the artist is just like, um, I'm, I'm not trying to make a trap. I'm trying to put as many ideas in as possible, whatever you get away from it. Hopefully it resonates enough to be of, of some sort of value, of some sort of tool for perception. And that's really my only uh, hope is that it refines or sharpens one's perceptions in order to better understand our environment, which is so media saturated. So, yeah, I, I consider myself an, an experimental like filmmaker who's really like trying to not be experimental. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to the Experimental Film Podcast with Ken Hess. And now, back to the show. Well, in fact, that brings up a good question um, in some of our conversation that we had before the podcast. What exactly does experimental film mean to you? How would you define it? Well, there's the there's the commercial definition and then there's the personal i'll say the commercial definition first um experimental film to me would be again anything that veers away from a hollywood narrative or genre production where you have um conventional sort of understanding and um of what's happening and and there's always a, a reason why and you're never really left having to figure there's not a lot of open-endedness I mean, there was a lot more open-endedness, I guess, in the 70s with, ironically, Robert Altman type of movies. Um, but it's, there's a beginning, middle, and end, and you know exactly why everything is happening. 
There might be some suspense. There's definitely some surprise. Most of it would be intentional. And uh, that's what I, you know, so, you know, like, and, and with experimental films in that sense, they aren't any of those things. And a lot of times the commercial sense of an experimental film is really just a mood piece where, uh, let's say, the filmmaker or the practitioner or the technician has come across some old type of technology or like an outdated type of um, film technology or an outdated any technology. And they just make something, let's say, a person on a phone, but you're filming them with uh, a Super 8 camera or a Bolex. Or the older the equipment, with the more modern depiction of something, uh, it's saying something. It's resonating in something. And, and and a lot of times, there's no narrative. Let's say, like it's just like a you know a, you know found footage. I love that term because it's essentially just um, a nice way of saying copyright infringement, which I think is a necessity for any type of understanding. And also, it's a huge potential business. But uh, again, like in the sense of like if if people were freely allowed to and encouraged to make as much video collage as possible, each edit could link back to the source, and then every component in each edit could also link to various services and retail environments so that the whole experimental video collage could be just considered a recontextualized content promotion or, and hopefully you'll like this one, an advertisement. Anyways, experimental film is just anything that anybody does that doesn't really have a obvious narrative. True. That, 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 would, be, that would be the best uh, depiction of it. Experimental film, in my personal sense, making a documentary is like basically just the antithesis of what you'd see on PBS or even on Netflix where, you know, like I watched about five minutes of Tiger King and I just think like, you know, I already knew that there were people in Florida that were, you know, edgy. And so, um, but it's easy to produce. That's the thing is that like anybody turns on a camera and just kind of has some, let's say, professional motion picture experience, you know, they get a crew and then they just follow people around and put it through the professional infrastructure of good cameras and avid and it makes it deliver and easily ingestible into whatever, uh, you know, like let's say Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, whatever streaming platform they do it. And if it's easily ingestible, I don't really, you know, you're not, I don't understand why there isn't an experimental streaming service or at least an experimental or avant experimental documentary section, more like, you know, like the evolution of the midnight movie, you know, Eraserhead's an experimental movie. Right. It, 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 uh, Lynch is an experimental filmmaker. Yep. Um, Robert Altman even at times is an experimental filmmaker. I mean, our our tolerance or the tolerance for what's considered experimental was pretty low. Like Robert Altman got in a huge problem. I, I was watching his uh, documentary by Rob. Rob uh, I, I forget the guy's first name, but his last name is Man, and I think he did one on comics and weed. And um, yeah, I forget his first name. I think it starts with an R. And he got in tr- Robert Altman got in trouble just for having some overlapping dialogue. And he said, well, I just wanted to kind of depict conversation as it really is. You know, people do tend to, on occasion, speak at the same time and let the user or let the viewer parse it out. Let the user, you know, not get so much clarification, you know, like life, you don't get clarification at any given second. Like, you know, like, I don't understand why people sort of like, I guess they want to escape into the movies, into a world where they get clarification for everything that they're seeing, but that gets a little boring after a while. Yeah. So do your films have a particular message or do you uh, create a film and you think, okay, in this film, this is the message I want to get across. I, I know in the, the motivation for making 
the McCl- this McLuhan uh, series began with in Winnipeg. I was lucky enough to get a grant. Well, not really a grant, but the local television station has to allocate a certain percentage of their budget towards local content. They can't just, you know, license existing content created wherever, you know, 100%. They have to have some where there's local content. Otherwise, you know, they have to like uh, pretty much give that money away. So they figure rather than give it away, they should cultivate the local content. And so you get a lot of documentaries about people and things going on locally in the province of Manitoba, which is uh, in Canada, obviously. And, and so no one had done one on McLuhan and it began, I thought it would only be like 20 minutes long. And the main impetus or the main momentum I was trying to establish was that Winnipeg did in fact have an impact and influence on the sensibility of Marshall McLuhan. And that was very difficult to find proof, so to speak. It was difficult to find McLuhan talking about Winnipeg. I had to like really uh, read a lot of like the, the backs of the books, backs of sort of like, I remember there's one called On that came out in the mid 90s. And I looked at the credits, like who gave the photographs and who, who were the people involved in some of the, of the writing in it, like anecdotal quotes and stuff, and then used the internet and began a correspondence. And I would get like a, a three old Sony cassettes in the mail and the sound on them was like impossible to hear anything. And then I learned how to use this program called Isotope and specifically (laughs) this function called denoise. So you could actually hear what was being said. And then, so, you know, there were these little, little milestones kept getting accomplished. Like, okay, he talks about Winnipeg here. He talks about his childhood here. Got another one. He talks about his family. He talks about his childhood, talks about university, talks about element, talks about everything. And then, I just got better at doing the research and found more and more. And then you have to assemble it. And then when you're working by yourself, you don't really know if, you know, when people see it, there's so much to get confused by that only till now, this is after working on it for like four years that I really, and I mean, I made like three features and I showed them, they got shown in, you know, Rio, Toronto and locally. Um, But it was only up until let's say September where I realized I was going to have to caption the entire movies like for for there to be like any linearity at all even if what even if the conversation wasn't necessarily completely a to z or one to ten as long as it like was readable it could go you know one b ten four three z x q i mean as long as people could understand what was being said then there was actually a thread of linearity going on and so yeah the whole the whole reason for doing this is just to kind of prove to myself and to get some proof. And so I found what I considered proof of the impact Winnipeg had. And I wasn't trying to sugarcoat it either. I mean, like in, in the version of one of the movies that focuses only on as much Winnipeg stuff as possible. I mean, McLuhan says, you know, it didn't really matter if I was in Winnipeg or anybody anywhere else. I just felt like whatever I was doing, wherever I was, couldn't have mattered less. But then, you know, like everybody kind of says other things later on that kind of contradict that. So I, I showed like a human side of him that I think everybody has. And I also like got very offended by the way that he's kind of depicted by most people think he grew up in Toronto. Um, he didn't. He grew up in Winnipeg from the age of four to 23, pretty much the formative years. And um, yeah, in the 
in, in like CBC, like they did a documentary about him because he was one of the extraordinary Canadians. And if you were to only watch that documentary, you walk away from it thinking that it, after 1968, he had a brain surgery and couldn't ever read again. Like he couldn't in the documentary, they're like, he couldn't read after having this brain surgery. And that's just not true. I mean, like, I'm not trying to say they're lying. I just think that they may have miswritten some of the copy that Douglas Copeland was reading in the documentary because there's footage of him, and I have it uh, as late as January 1979. I mean, you can he's A, he's reading, and, and B, this is a, a person that's still very, very much um, as innovative conversationally, which was his preferred um, medium, was dialogue. And his, you know, just so he could make discoveries personally. I mean, it was quite selfish, but I mean, he also knew that he was saving the world time by doing what he did. I mean, there's one book called The Gutenberg Galaxy, and someone said, you sure, you certainly expect your readers to have, been, you know, read a lot of books. And he says, well, no, I, I got the best parts for you, and um, I'm saving you the time of having to read them. Now, obviously, if someone reads something and they're truly curious, they can go read it. But, I mean, I look at a lot of what McLuhan did as contextualizing just such a sheer mass of information that's just an, his, his, his contribution is just an inventory of context for the effects of technology, right. like all, all his writing. But, yeah, it was just like proving Winnipeg's influence. I found proof of that from my own sense and then put that in the movie. And then, I mean, I began the movie, I guess, in February... Uh, well, I met his eldest son, Eric, in October 2015, and I began working on these movies that became like three different movies in February 2016. And then, like, you know, Trump won and, you know, the reaction of that and just just one thing after the other just seemed like this is such a McLuhan-esque time <laughs> that I kept expanding the range of, you know, showing that he, how right on he was. And just, I guess, wondering why why is he so not taught in schools? And then that, but that's literally changing these days. I mean, you can't go on Twitter. You type McLuhan in Twitter and you click on latest. I mean, you'll get like thousands of tweets. Granted, most of them are the medium is the message or global village, but some of them are like, you know, world war three is a guerrilla information war. He wrote that in 1970. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just kind of like felt obligated to just keep doing this uh, till you know, things like, you know, having this conversation with you and having a, you know, being on a podcast talking about not so much for my own personal uh, gain, but just like, I, I think if people were more McLuhan-esque in their sensibility to analyzing the daily mediums of information that we're subjected to, that they'd probably be a little more balanced in general, or at least have a better sense of humor about it. I mean, every, everything just seems so unnecessarily classified when the act of classification is such a placebo anyway. Which filmmakers are your inspirations? Do you have uh, one or two that who have really influenced you? Recently, I discovered the work of Alan Berliner. Um, I, 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 just, I realized I had watched a film of his called, I think, Myth in the Electric Age about five years ago, and, and I just looked at his work, just his workflow, and was just like, well, if this guy, if they're celebrating this guy, then they have to celebrate, not necessarily they or celebrate, but it's like, if this guy's been given sort of like this platform, and then I think his latest documentary that hasn't come out yet is about his New York Times collection, and he's, you know, they'll just call them personal essays. So I'm saying, okay, well, there's a precedent for my kind of work in the work of Alan Berliner. 
And then I look at Stan Brackage and his work, and uh, people, some people will be online and they'll say, like, never play music while playing Stan Brackage. And it's just hilarious that people are even, like, able to say that simply because where did people even see Stan Brackage? I saw Stan Brackage in the 90s, but I had to, like, go to Los Angeles to go to, a, like, in Toronto to go, like, their video stores and to find the places in those cities that, you know, the sections where they would even be. But now because of YouTube, people just take it for granted that, you know, you can get pretty much any hard-to-find movie um, and movies like Sam Brackage, Alan Berliner, Kenneth Anger, and the short films of so many like filmmakers like David Lynch and et cetera, it goes on and on. And so when I think of Stan Brackage movies and whether you listen to them with music or whether you don't listen to them with, uh, you know, cause sound's happening anyways. So there's always a soundtrack, even if it's silence, as John Cage said, silence is the sound of our environment. I just figured like, well, my film is like, if there was an, you know, narrative inside a Stan Brackage movie, instead of it being just a chemical reaction, however designed, what would happen if that was just with Marshall McLuhan's voice and whatever came to my mind? And that's really all it is. I mean, it doesn't have to, someone, you know, like people that look at a Stan Brackage movie, what are they going to say? Like, they, they can't look at it like, oh, you're missing a comma. Or they can't supply some kind of experimental film grammar to whether it's correct or incorrect. And so that's how... That's how I was looking at my movie. Like, it, it, it can't be, like, it, it's not, um, it's post-literate. So it's, like, is post-literate, like, pre-literate, where there ain't no grammatical errors in a non-literate society? Like, <laughs> what's the uh, what's the contrast? And that's what, you know, I kind of taken a long time to get to it, but the sort of frustration of, you know, you go on film freeway or, worse uh the other one for sundance uh which i never used again um and it's just like what are like where are, it's so hard to even know which festivals are experimental yeah and and just like what are they i i don't even it's so hard to understand like what anybody's looking for because on the surface you talk about McLuhan and you have someone speaking and if it doesn't my films don't overtly look like a experimental film which, you know, ironically makes it even more experimental, but it's, it's like, it's definitely not a genre film either. So it's right. like, I'm really in this, like, you know, area of, uh, like, an inch, a gap between experimental and commercial. Yeah, it's very experimental. I'll, I'll just tell you that right now. But what I'm really interested in now at this point, since we, you know, are about out of time, what are you working on right now, if you can tell us? Based, right now, I'm just really... Um, I'm serializing Western Cynical onto YouTube. And what that means is I'm just captioning bits and pieces. Like, I'm linearly captioning. Like, I'm going through the whole movie, like, you know, in a linear zero to when it finishes, two, hour, two hours and 39 minutes. Um, and I'm just captioning bits and pieces and releasing them in, an, like, an episodic way. And then I'm also using Medium to give further context to each of the episodes should anybody want to understand anything about them that may be harder to get outside of just watching them like, you know, three or four times, which I don't expect anyone to do, but that's the only real way it's going to make any sense. And that that's where the whole Finnegan's Wake uh, sensibility. When I realized that what I was doing was Finnegan's Wake, then I didn't really, I wasn't self-conscious about why it was looking the way it looked, because that's another thing. You don't really know how these things are going to work and, or turn out until you start doing them. And just um, formally, so the movies are um, 
McLuhan unclaimed Donald went a pigeon. It's about an hour and a half. McLuhan unclaimed Western Cynical. That's really long. It's over two hours, like two and a half hours. And then the last one that I did on, in that sort of guise was called McLuhan unclaimed Toronto Jungle, which I played in Toronto. And it was all about how basically while McLuhan was teaching at U of T, he was the object of a lot of scorn by his colleagues. And um, it goes into that. And then I made an hour-long one just to try and get them into festivals, or at least uh, some festivals that consider an hour a short film. And that one's called Winnipeg's McLuhan, just because that's my commercial sensibility um, kicking in. And I'm figuring people will confuse it for uh, my Winnipeg. But um, my favorite filmmakers, and I'm answering sort of out of order, you know, like, I'll just go by the movies. After Hours, Rear Window, Raising Arizona, Blade Runner, Lost Highway. And then, you know, just anything that's interesting that isn't um, not interesting. But, yeah, if you go to Winnipeg's McLuhan on YouTube, that's the latest place for everything I'm doing. And further context would just be in this, the descriptions of the videos. And I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, Ken, and your patience as an interviewer and my wandering sensibility as an interviewee. <laughs> Thank you for having thanks for having that patience yeah thank you for being on today i appreciate it and thank you for joining us on this seventh episode of the experimental film podcast our guest today was experimental filmmaker richard altman please contact me if you'd like to schedule an interview sponsor the podcast or point me to some cool experimental films and we'll see you next time if you would like to sponsor a podcast or schedule an interview send an email to ken at experimentalfilm.info Thanks for listening to the Experimental Film Podcast with Ken Hess.